Good morning, everyone. Let's pray together. God, there's a bit of doubting Thomas in every single one of us. We want our minds and our hearts to work in harmony when it comes to this man, Jesus. And maybe today you'd move us down the field on that one. And I pray that you would so that we would have the courage of faith to have an appropriate response to who Jesus really was. So we pray for insight and wisdom on this. We pray that you'd use me in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, I'm glad that you're here. We are, as our habit, we're going to dismiss children. So children ages kindergarten through fifth grade, you're dismissed to your learning centers. You're going to be learning a lesson about Jesus right now. Hey, everybody. Uh, Again, I just want to welcome you. I'm really glad that you're here taking in week two on this series on Jesus. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, this, I think, is going to be very encouraging for you to kind of combine reasons with your faith. And for those of you who are investigating, maybe somebody invited you here today, we're so glad that you're here. And maybe you describe yourself as a spiritual seeker, you're investigating. And I think some of the things you're going to hear today might really compel you uh, regarding the person of Jesus Christ. So next, or last week rather, we kind of asked the question, you know, who was Jesus anyway? And uh, we came up with the answer, the traditional answer, the New Testament answer. And it's pretty obvious and maybe standard and maybe you know about it, being raised in the church, many of you. The standard answer of who was Jesus is simply this, that he was the Jewish Messiah, that he was a fully human man, and yet also simultaneously he was fully God, one with God the Father himself. That his self-proclaimed mission was to uh, give himself as a sacrificial death that would be a ransom payment for human sin. And that his resurrection, that he was bodily raised from the dead, and this in some sense authenticated all the prior claims that we're talking about. So that's the traditional answer. But let's not pretend that that's how everybody looks at Jesus. Right? We're kidding ourselves when we think that everybody thinks that that traditional answer truly answers the question, who was Jesus anyhow? There's a bunch of other answers to the question. There's the Mormon answer, and the Mormon answer is somewhat similar, but uh, there's some key addendums that says, in part, that Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer, who's the devil. Then there's the uh, Jehovah Witness answer to the question, who was Jesus anyway? And, and they would say that he was not one with the Father, that he was, in fact, a high and exalted created being. In fact, he was the archangel Michael, is kind of how they look at Jesus. Then there's the Muslim answer. And the Muslim answer is that that Jesus existed, but that he was a mere prophet and that he was inferior to Muhammad, who was the prince of all prophets. And then there's the Jesus seminar answer. We talked about that last week. The secular uh, view of Jesus, the merely human Jesus that sees him as a cynic sage, a traveling itinerant preacher, merely human, did no miracles, claimed no divine nature for himself. So let's look at these, shall we? And let's look at them like at a trial. And in a trial, you have the prosecution, and they try to make their case, and they have a story. They have a set of facts they want to convince you of, and to do that, they base their story on a set of witnesses. The defense, in order to give you a different story, an alternate version of the facts, has to rely, on some sense, on different witnesses, don't they? So that's kind of how it is with Jesus. Not surprisingly, when you look at these other visions of Jesus, they rely 
on additional or completely different sources for their vision of Jesus. So, for example, not surprisingly, the Mormon view is built on the New Testament plus the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. The Jehovah Witness view is, is built on the teachings and prophecies of a guy named Charles Taze Russell, and um, he uh, helped spawn the development of a special Bible called the New World Translation and their Watchtower. And then the Muslim view is, of course, built on the Quran, right? The 7th century Quran. And then the Jesus Seminar scholars, they lean on uh, the secret gospels. And we're going to talk all about what that is if you're un not understanding what that is. But the secret gospels are the source for a new sort of secularized vision of Jesus. So now how many of you are going to date yourself now a little bit? How many of you have seen episodes of the old TV game show To Tell the Truth? All right, so yeah, old people. All right, so... So in this game show, here's how it went down. The show would feature three people all pretending to be the same guy, but only one of them was the real guy. And then you'd have celebrities, and they'd interrogate these imposters and the real guy and ask a bunch of questions and finally vote on who they thought the real guy was. And the, and the iconic moment in the show was when all the votes were in, and then the host would ask, will the real Slim Shady please stand up? All right? So that's how it went down. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to play the game to tell the truth, and we're going to ask, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because one of these guys has got to be the real guy, right? I and mean, we've kind of exhausted the options here. I mean, there might be another. There, there is the Jesus was an alien crowd, but we're not going to look at that one today. I hope you don't mind that we're just not going to consider that one. So, so we're going to look at all these and say, will the real Jesus please stand up? But friends, this is so much more than a game. And why is that? Because the stakes are sky high. I mean, that's why I'm so passionate about this. Because, friends, if Jesus was who he said he was, if he corresponds to the traditional view, then to look into the face of Jesus is to look into the face of God. And you might have wondered what God was like, but no longer in the sense that when you see Jesus, you now know what God is like if the traditional view is the real Jesus. If the traditional view is the real Jesus, then he splits our time in two. Then he's the beginning and the end. He's the end of religion, if he is who he said he was. Now, if he's not, let's be honest, you need to do something else next weekend. If he's not, you need to find something else to do. But if he is, but if he is, then, friends, he needs to, starting right now, to be the sun around which your life orbits. And can you say that? Can you say that that is kind of how I view Jesus? He is the sun around which my life increasingly orbits. So, friends, we need to come to a verdict about Jesus. We have to. The stakes are sky high. Now, just like we would in a court of law, we need to interrogate the witnesses. And we need to see which ones are going to be credible. So to do that, though, we need a principle. We need to cut through the clutter because there's a lot of data about Jesus out there. So to cut through the clutter, we're going to lean on a very simple principle. It's called the principle of proximity. So the principle is very similar. It says basically this, that the closer that you are to the person or events that you're describing, the more reliable that your witness is. So you look at all those witnesses there, and you notice there are different distances to the time and events of Jesus. So it's a pretty self-explanatory idea. It's also a very old idea. In fact, in the second century, they were, 
They were asking this question just like you're asking the question. Who was Jesus really? And they were debating and they were kicking it around. And there was an old church father. His name was Tertullian. And he lays out the principle of proximity saying this is what should decide it for us. I'll read you the quote. You can see it there on the slide. He said, now what should settle the point for us? Except it be that principle of time which rules that the authority lies with that which shall found to be more ancient. And then the rest of the quote goes like this. And assumes as an elemental truth that corruption of doctrine belongs to the side which shall be convicted of comparative lateness in its origin. What's he saying? He's saying the telephone game matters. And that the farther you are from the source, just like in the telephone game, the more corrupted the message is going to become. So with that one principle, we can begin to rule out some Jesus sources, some of the witnesses that may be considered to modify your picture of who Jesus is. So, for example, the Jehovah Witnesses sources, as we said, were founded on Charles Taze Russell, who lived relatively recently, late uh, 19th century, late 1800s. So that's a long way from Jesus. The Mormon sources are only slightly older from uh, Joseph Smith's prophecies, early 19th century. He received his prophecies in Upper New York in about the 1820s. Muslim sources are much older. They are from the 7th century A.D., but that's still seven centuries, that's 700 years removed from Jesus. And here's another problem. While Muslims certainly believe that Jesus lived, the one thing they are absolutely certain did not happen, the one that is a thing of doctrinal um, veracity in the Muslim religion is that Jesus was never crucified. Well, what's so ironic about that is the one thing you can know for sure is that Jesus was crucified. The one thing that you can know from all uh, biblical sources and certainly uh, all external secular sources, one thing you can know that you can take to the bank and consider a fact, whether you're believing or unbelieving, is that Jesus Christ was crucified in the reign of Tiberius under the rule of Pontius Pilate, governor of Palestine. You can just know that. And so that presents a deep problem for the Muslim view. The one thing they're absolutely certain about is the one thing that is absolutely certainly wrong. So the principle of proximity, uh, we got to get, we got to closer. We got to. I mean, seven centuries is a long way from now, but it's still a long way from Jesus. We got to get closer if we can. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because each year the media is going to blitz you coming up to Easter. So now's the time. Expect a Time magazine cover. Expect a Newsweek magazine cover to tell you that uh, new, that scholars have discovered new sources of information about Jesus that contradict the Bible's view. These will be called the secret gospels. Or you'll turn on the History Channel and you'll see a special about the lost books of the Bible. And you'll say to yourself, oh my gosh, there were books that were in the Bible and someone like cut them out because of their political or religious agenda? That's terrible. That's a horrible thing. It's a tale of conspiracy. Well, did that really happen? Is that really the state of things? Well, we're going to talk all about the secret gospels this morning, friends. Um, let's clarify, first of all, what we're talking about. The so-called secret gospels are writings, a collection of them, written primarily by a sect of Christianity from the second century known as the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics were a, a sort of a, a Greekified group that had put a heavy Greek philosophical slant on the story of Jesus. So Christians in name, but really Greek, philo uh, Greek philosophers in practice. They were deeply opposed, for example, to the idea of incarnation. Why? Well, because Greek philosophy taught you that this physical world is a decrepit thing, that it's malformed and, um, and uh, lesser and um, base. The real things, the holy things, the wonderful things are the things in the 
uh, non-material realm. And so the idea that God would incarnate himself in a material form was just sort of disgusting to them. And so they believed that salvation wasn't through forgiveness or Christ's atoning work, but rather through obtaining secret knowledge through channeling the Christ essence within. They were kind of pantheistic in this way as well. Okay? Now, their name, Gnosis, they were, they were Gnostics. It comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which is where we get our word for knowledge. So they believe that salvation came through secret knowledge. So instead of the familiar names that you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the biblical gospels, they had gospels that they wrote with names like Thomas, Mary, Peter, Judas, and Philip. And those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you recognize those names. You say, oh, well, those are people from the story of Jesus. Is it true that they write biographies of Jesus that are more authentic or more trustworthy than the gospels that we have in our Bible? Well, let's remember our principle of proximity. And if we remember our principle of proximity, and we trust that that's a pretty uh, good way of, of getting an authentic witness, what's the first question you're going to ask about the so-called secret gospels? First question, when were they written? When were they written? We'd like to know when were they written. How close are they to the events that they purport to describe? Here's a chart. These are approximate ranges of origin of the biblical gospels, starting with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark, the earliest, 50 to 70, I'm giving you possible origin ranges. These are determined generally by your philosophical outlook. Conservative scholars will date early. More liberal scholars will date later, but that's the range for Mark. 50 to 70, Luke 60 to 80, Matthew 65 to 80 or 85, John 90 to 100. Okay? And that's indisputable in the sense that that range is accepted by everybody, believing, non-believing. That's when we believe the New Testament Gospels were written. Here's the date of the writing of the Gnostic text. Gospel of Thomas. 100 to 150, Gospel of Mary, 150 to 200, Gospel of Peter, 150 to 180, Gospel of Judas, 180 to 300, we're really not certain about that one, Gospel of Philip, 150 to 200. Do you see a problem? So immediately, you go to the principle of proximity, and by chronology, the sources of Jesus' life that you have in your New Testament are by time 100 years closer to the events that they purport to describe than the so-called lost books of the Bible. By the way, they were never considered for inclusion in the Bible. Never. Not even by the Gnostics, which is really ironic. So to get the impact of this, just imagine that you and I are writing biographies of a very important historical figure, Abraham Lincoln. But I'm going to start writing my biography in 1985, and you're going to write your biography in 1885. So it's a, you're 100 years closer to Abraham's life than I am, in 1985, even though it was an epic year, the year I graduated. Duran Duran. Sweet. So, so even though, even though you're, you're writing 100 years closer to Abraham Lincoln. Now, which biography are you going to tend to lean on? Which one are you tend to going to believe has a more immediate, accurate picture of the 13th president of the United States? Yours. Because it's 100 years older than mine, principle of proximity. Now, that doesn't mean that my 1985 biography is full of lies. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that if your biography and my biography differ, what are we going to lean on? What's going to be our bias for acceptance of credibility? Your biography and not mine. Now, let's throw a monkey wrench into this whole thing. What if I told you that um, my biography, it, written in 1985, was special? And it was special because God had given me special insight into Abraham Lincoln's life that no one else had. Like it was, it was given to me, special. Quietly, off in a corner, but it was, it was revealed 
to me, would that convince you to throw away the principle of proximity? Would that cause you to say, well, now if there's a difference, I guess I'm going to lean towards the 1985 biography because he got special revelation and the 1885 biography probably is full of holes. No. No, probably not. No, probably what you're going to do is you're going to need extraordinary evidence to believe that the 1885 or 1985 biography is more reliable than the much, much older one. What if I tried to convince you of this? Well, friends, understand, this is exactly what's going on with the Gnostics. A hundred years later, through special knowledge, the revelation of special knowledge, they're trying to tell you that their version of Jesus is more accurate than the ones that are coming from a hundred years before. And oh, by the way, while we're on the topic, this is exactly what is also happening with the Mormons and the Muslims. So the Muslim vision of Jesus, when it's different from the New Testament vision of Jesus, and it's different significantly on several different places, will tell you that you should trust Muhammad's vision from the 7th century, 700 years later. Why? Because he got it in a vision from the, prophet, or from the angel Gabriel in a cave near Mecca. And the same thing with Joseph Smith. At the place where there's a discrepancy between his vision of Jesus and the biblical vision, you're supposed to abrogate your old vision of Jesus and accept his because he had prophecies that were given to him in 1820. Now, that's a stretch, isn't it? You're going to say, now, I'm not giving up the principle of proximity for someone's claim of special revelation unless I have extraordinary evidence. And in fact, in all these cases, we have no witnesses of their special revelation. So um, let, let's just take all that uh, for granted for a second, but then let's also grant that even though writing 100 years later, the Gnostics might have some credible sources. Let's say some strata inside of their, their vision of Jesus came from early, from the first century, even though they were written much, much later. Is there anything inside those texts to show that they're more proximate, that is to say more close to Jesus than the New Testament gospel? Let's look at them, okay? And we'll look at them and we'll try to find out. So let's start with the Gospel of Mary. You've never read the Gnostic Gospels. Today you're going to get a taste. How many of you read Da Vinci Code or seen the Da Vinci movies? Most of you, okay? So you know that based on Dan Brown's creative storytelling that the Gospel of Mary, which is a real Gnostic Gospel, is, is, is supposed to tell you that Jesus had a love affair with Mary Magdalene, that they had children, and they spawned a race of Merovingian kings in France, wonderful tale. Now, is any of that true? Well, it's true that the Gospel of Mary does show that Jesus has, uh, treats Mary as a close friend. He even kisses her at one point in the Gospel. And also it depicts uh, Peter's jealousy of her and her close relationship with Jesus. But now we have to ask the question, is it for that reason more trustworthy? Well, let me give you a feel for a piece of it so you can ask yourself the question, does this sound like a piece of work that came from mid-century of first century Palestine. Here's a, a bit of the Gospel of Mary. In an aeon, I was released from a world, and in a type, from a type, and from a fetter of oblivion, which is transient. And from this time on, I will attain to the rest of the time of the season of the aeon in silence. Amen. What's that mean? <laughs> no one knows what that means. Does that sound like a first century Jewish rabbi? No. That sounds like Tom Cruise talking at a Scientology convention. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. The reason is, as I said, the Gnostics melded heavy Greek philosophy with the story of Jesus. And what you're reading there, that sounds like just gibberish to you, mostly to me too, but if you kind of look into this, you realize what they're trying to say here 
is that the physical world is decrepit and you must be released from this into something called the aeons. And if you do, then you can reach knowledge and salvation. That's basically what's going on. So you ask yourself the question, does this sound like a Jewish rabbi walking and talking in Palestine in the first century? Is this how Jesus would likely sound? No. And because this, we know this uh, unequivocally. We know the Christian story goes from Jewish lands founded in Jerusalem and spreads out into Greek and Roman lands. We know that. I mean, everyone agrees to that. That's the flow of the religion from a Jewish context into a Greek context. So the corruption of the story, if there was going to be corruption, would go from a Jewish flavor to a Greek flavor and not the other way around. It wouldn't start off as a Greek Jesus and then get corrupted into a Jewish Jesus. That's just not the way it would happen. But to overthrow the church's traditional view of Jesus, which by the time this was written had been circulating for 100 years, so it was well entrenched, what the Gnostics are doing is they're going to have Mary uh, reveal the true secrets of Jesus. So you think you know who Jesus is, but the Gnostics are telling you, no, Mary will reveal the secrets, the true secrets. In fact, you can read another quote that shows just how strategically, transparently, the Gnostic author has Peter, who we know represents the traditional view, submitting to Mary. Check this out. Peter said to Mary, again, a quote from the Gospel of Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of woman. Tell us the words of the Savior, which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. Mary answered and said, What is hidden from you, I will proclaim to you. (laughs) This always makes me laugh, because it's just so transparent in its attempt to say to those adhering to the traditional view, you don't have it right. Mary will reveal the secrets. Peter didn't know anything. So Peter didn't know who Jesus really was. Mary did. Isn't that convenient? So this is the way I feel like um, Mary sort of discredits herself. And um, we just, let's let's look at the next witness. So let's now look at um, the Gospel of Peter. This is another secret gospel. It's called secret, but we always knew about it. How do we know about it? Because the church fathers referred to it. So it was never secret. And, and again, ironically, the church fathers were very fair in their assessment of Gnostic teachings when they refuted them. So there was really no surprises when we found a real copy of the Gospel of Peter uh, in about 1880 uh, because we always knew what the Gnostics taught through the church fathers who contradicted them. So here's some of the uh, material that you'll find in the Gospel of Peter. It has Jesus on the cross saying the following, My power, my power, why have you forsaken me? Now you know that that corresponds pretty closely to the biblical account, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the problem. Again, we have Greek philosophical corruption because the original is not just built on a guy speaking in first century Palestine, but on a quote from Psalm 22, which is from 1000 B.C., So the Jewish context is being added to by a Greek context, and you have a Jesus who wasn't the Son of God or referring to the Old Testament at all, but rather a Greek pantheist. And that sounds like a heavy Gnostic bias. Here's another uh, thing to note about the Gospel of Peter. It's deeply anti-Semitic. And again, to cast blame on Jews, Pilate is completely whitewashed. And that shows a deep Gnostic bias. Again, and maybe you didn't know this, but the Gnostics were kind of elitists, and they also hated the Old Testament. They thought that it was the work of an evil God. So they basically just flushed it. 
So it's not surprising then that when they're evaluating Jesus and when he, when he quotes the Old Testament, they don't like that, so they change his words so that he no longer quotes the Old Testament, which they don't agree with. Here's another thing. The Gospel of Peter is full of outlandish, legendary material. Now, some of you in this room are saying, Rick, <laughs> I've read the New Testament. It's full of miracles. Talk about outlandish, legendary material. But listen, no, understand something. The, the accounting of the miracles in the New Testament is sober by comparison to what you read in the Gospel of Peter. For example, in the Gospel of Peter, Jesus uh, feels no pain on the cross. He's just up there stoically. I don't feel any pain. And then when Christ comes out of the tomb, and by the way, the New Testament Gospels never show him coming out of the tomb, just appearances afterwards. But the Gospel of Peter somehow had somebody on the scene, an on-the-scene reporter, to see Jesus coming out of the tomb. And when he does, he's accompanied by two men whose heads extend up to the sky while Christ himself extends beyond the sky. He's like a giant Jesus. He comes out of the tomb, and now he's grown by like 100 feet. And to top it all off, these three are followed out of the tomb by a cross that talks. Okay? So now if you understand the, the, the flavor of the Gospel of Peter and the other Gnostic Gospels, you'll probably agree that the Gospel accounts are, here's the good word, sober by comparison. Now here's another deep irony about the Gnostic texts, the so-called secret Gospels, is that they're put forward as... This is evidence of a secular Jesus. But the Gnostic Gospels to a writing, every single one of them, demonstrates a supernaturalized Jesus, a divinized Jesus, a miracle-working Jesus, a, a highly um, a spiritualized Jesus, not this secular country bumpkin preacher going from town to town, the merely human Jesus. Except perhaps the next witness, which is the Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is just a collection of sayings about Jesus. There's no stories. There's no miracles. There's no narrative. There's no resurrection. There's nothing. So you can see, Gospel of Thomas appeals to people who want to see Jesus through merely secular eyes. But as we're going to see, this lack of historical context is a real problem when you're trying to verify whether Thomas is credible or not. When we do look inside the text, though, we see that it differs from the New Testament on several different areas. It's not unbelievable to think that the Gospel of Thomas has legitimate sayings of Jesus inside it. I wouldn't disagree with that. But when those sayings differ from what we see in the New Testament, the question remains, where, where should our bias be? What should we favor? And again, we favor principle of proximity. And you see Greek philosophical corruption. And you say, well, how do we see it? Well, let me just give you one example, probably the most uh, stunning. Uh, the very last verse of the Gospel of Peter. I'll read it for you now. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too becomes a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. <laughs> yeah. Hey, don't shoot the messenger. I I'm just, I'm just reporting. So this is what the Gnostics kind of were. They were kind of elitists in this way. They were anti-Semitic and elitists, and that's who they were. Ironically, again, they are used to, to push forward this idea that the real Jesus was a super feminist. But they rely on these documents, which are deeply anti-feminist. It's just a real deep irony. And especially when you consider what the New Testament Jesus was like. He speaks to women in public. He honors them. He brings them into his extended entourage of disciples and followers. And then the New Testament follows suit and makes them apostles and teachers and leaders and prophets. 
I mean, so what, what, a, what a picture, a different picture of how the Gnostics versus the historical Jesus treated women. So if you go back to Tertullian's proximity test, it really just doesn't look good for the lost Gospels. Uh, just a simple matter of chronology. They are not proximate to Jesus. But what about cultural proximity? Let's go here, and here's some fascinating things, AC3, probably some stuff that even if you've researched it, you might not have heard because this is relatively recent research. Let's look at these witnesses and see how they fare in terms of uh, cultural proximity and geographical proximity. Do these look like, do these different sets of Gospels look like they were formed in the land in first century Palestine? Do they show the characteristics of, of eyewitness testimony? Well, let's just look at one thing like the name of towns. In the New Testament, there's a total of 14 town names. The most important, you know, is Jerusalem, right? And then there's Nazareth. And then there's a dozen or so more obscure villages listed. Caesarea Philippi, Capernaum, Bethany, a bunch more. Chorazan and Bethsaida and a whole bunch. Okay? So about 14 or so. Archaeology has borne out that these places not only existed, but they exist in the places in the geographical area ascribed by the writers. So not only did Capernaum exist, the New Testament says it existed on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we did a dig, and boom, there's, there's Capernaum. And I've stood there on the dig, and they think they've actually uncovered Peter's old house. And they built a church on top of it. So uh, not only these places existed, but they exist in the exact place that the writers say. Capernaum is on the sea. Nazareth, the Bible says, is on a hill. They do a dig, there's Nazareth, it's on a hill. The distance in the Bible between Jerusalem and Bethany is just a couple of hours walking distance. And they do a dig, there's Bethany, and lo and behold, it's just a few miles from Jerusalem. That sounds like it's coming from a source proximate to the land and the time of Jesus, right? That sounds like eyewitness testimony. But you may say, Rick, not so fast. That's easy to make up. I could make that look the same. I could make something look authentic. I could make it sound like eyewitness material. And I could still have written it in the second or third century by people who didn't even know Jesus. All I have to do is just do good research. Just do good research. Let's test the plausibility of that. Let me, by, by just painting a scenario for you. Let's say you wanted to make up a story about France in the 1890s. But you wanted it to sound authentic. Because you wanted it to sound like it revolved around a historical figure that everybody knew. Let's say Napoleon. But you wanted to promulgate a different idea. A different thing. But you're, you're falsifying. You know it's not true. But you want it to sound like it's true. Okay? So now you're going to invent a story about France. You living in Marysville, Washington, are going to make a story about 1890s France. But you don't have Google, you don't have a library, you don't have Wikipedia, and everybody you know hasn't traveled more than 20 miles from their hometown. Now, go. Make up a story and include lots of geographical details. Name one town in France in the 1890s. Go ahead. Go ahead. Paris. Yep, you got one right. Good. Now, name another less than 2,000 people in the 1890s. So no one. Okay, so we're stumped. And here we are in, the, in 2016. Some of you are madly going to Google. I bet you there's... You don't have Google! Right? You don't have Google. You don't have Wikipedia. You don't have a library. Now you've got to make it up. So what are you going to tend to do? This is going to be a real problem for you because you want it to sound like it's true because you want to change people's perspectives on Napoleon. You want it to sound true, but you want it to be false. So how are you going to get that done? Well, 
what are you probably going to do is you're just going to leave out references altogether, right? Because once you put the references in, they can be fact-checked. So you don't put the references in if you're making it up. That's likely what will probably happen, right? So let's go to the Gnostic Gospel Library and ask ourselves, how many towns are listed in the entire Gnostic Library? Gospel of Philip. Two towns are mentioned, Jerusalem and Nazareth. However, Nazareth is listed as Jesus' middle name, not as the town that he, was, that he grew up in. Uh, Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Savior, one town is mentioned. Which one? Jerusalem, because you can get that right. Name a big town in France in 1890. Paris, we can all get that one right. So they got that one right. That's awesome. All the other 2nd and 3rd century Gnostic Gospels, how many references to towns total? Zero. Zero. Because that's what you do if you're making it up from a long distance chronologically and geographically. You leave out the details. You don't put details in. You take details out. That's what a truly clever forger would do. All right, so now let's look at something different. And this one maybe is going to be as amazing to you as it was to me. So let's say, let's go again to this um, idea of uh, writing uh, in, in France uh, about a story in the 1890s. You can't very well tell a story about uh, Napoleon and not mention some people around him, right? Okay, so let's say you can leave out all the references to rivers and mountains and cities, but you've got to at least have some people in there, right? You're going to have, you're gonna have to name some people in your story to make it sound at all authentic. So what sort of names show up in the Gnostic Gospels versus the New Testament ones? What frequency of personal names? Fascinating question. Again, before we answer that question, let's go to our... Our, our, uh, our um, uh, uh, hypothetical scenario. You're our storyteller, and you're trying to write a story set in France 150 years ago, but let's say uh, you could avoid mentioning any names of towns or geography, but you've got to have the people, and you've got to people besides the main character, like Napoleon, which everybody knows. Now, what are the chances that you're going to get the frequency of the popular names at the time right? You say, well, I... Uh, I don't know, that's easy. Just pick out French names, right? You'd, you'd populate your story with names of people like Pierre and Maurice, Jean-Paul, right? And you'd do all that stuff because, well, those are French names. But how do you know those were the French names? The names that were popular that would have occurred at a frequency rate that would have indicated their popularity at the time of Napoleon. You have no clue. You have no clue. And to prove this, I, I just did a little Google research on this, and uh, you know these ideas of Jean-Paul and Pierre and all that, all of the most popular French names at the time of Napoleon were unlike any of the ones that you would just naturally name. And this makes sense, right? Because popular names change radically. Top girl names in the year 2014 in America, Sophia, Emma, Olivia, Ava, Isabella, Mia, Zoe, Lily, Emily, and Madeline. Well, this changes radically because 50 years ago, the most popular girl names were Linda, Patricia, Susan, and Deborah. You wouldn't get it right. If you just guessed 150 years ago, I'm just going to populate my story with a bunch of people with, with names that sound French, you're not going to get the frequency right. They won't occur in your story at a rate that would correspond to the actual situation on the ground. You'll guess wrong. Well, here's something amazing. And we could only find this recently because uh, we needed computers to analyze all the ancient Near East documents that we have, not the Bible so much as all the external Bible sources to find out what the most popular 
um, personal names were in Palestine in the middle of the first century. And we now know because we've crunched all the data. Big computers can do this rel relatively easily. So here's what they are. Number one through six, Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, and Jesus. So those are the most popular names from outside the Bible. We just know that those are the popular, most popular given names in the first century in Palestine. Now, do you want to know what the most popular names listed in the New Testament are? Here's the list from the New Testament. Simon, Joseph, Judas, John, Jesus, Lazarus. And the only one that's out of order is Lazarus. Now, again, how do you think this kind of cultural proximity happened? How do you think it happened? Well, was it a fluke? Can, can you fake that? This is an argument, friends, for the close eyewitness nature of the New Testament, where they're just reporting on what happened, and they're just throwing in the personal names, and oh, it just so happens to correspond exactly with what we know were the frequency of personal names in Palestine in the first century. Now you'll object again. You'll say, Rick, come on, you can fake that. You, you can just get, maybe, maybe Jews weren't very creative. Maybe they just named their kids the same name century after century in every place that they lived. No, not true. And again, by computer analysis, we know that the most popular Jewish names from Egypt, same time frame, were radically different. Here's the most popular names of Jews in Egypt, first century. Eleazar, Sabbatius, Joseph, Docetheus, Pappas, and Ptolemaeus. And what you see in parentheses is the popularity on the Palestinian list. Sabbatius, second in Egypt, was 68th in Palestine. Docetheus ranked 16 in Palestine, fourth in Egypt, and so on. I mean, it's a fantastic correspondence, and the Egyptian test really is our control in the experiment. It shows that this is not a fluke, that to get this right, you had to be on the ground. To get this right, you had to rely on eyewitness testimony. You had to be there, in other words. Now, I know some of you are wondering, well, how did the Gnostic Gospels do? Because they had to include some names, and they do. So they get the two big ones right. There's a lot of talk of Jesus, and then there's Peter. But they only refer to one of them, and then the rest of them go like this in popularity. Didymus Thomas, which, by the way, means twin-twin, which shows a deep misunderstanding of uh, Hebrew idiom. Uh, Didymus Thomas, James, Andrew, Levi, Barbello, Sophia, and then a bunch of aliens. Nebro, uh, Yathol, Baoth, Saklas, Seth, Harmathoth, Galilea, Yobel, Adonias, Adam, Eve, Zoe, Michael, Gabriel, and so on and so on and so on. And they just, they just, they guessed, and they didn't get it right. And that makes sense, because they're writing from the second century. They're writing from a hundred years geographic and chronological distance. They are not proximate to Jesus. They violate the principle of proximity. So it comes down to this, AC3. We accept the Jesus of the New Testament because it comes to us by far from the earliest written sources with all the internal and external signs of proximity. Or, or you can exchange all that for a real Jesus, which modern scholarship tells us exists behind the myth. And what is their evidence? Reliance on the secret gospels written 150 years after the fact ascribing authorship to people who were long dead with no names of places or rivers or geographical uh, bodies, and the names of people sound like they came out of a Stephen King novel. There's your choice. The suggestion that the New Testament record should be traded in for this 
It just, it's not even tempting to me. You're going to have to do your own research on that, perhaps. And the only reason some people do want to trade it in is to avoid the quite uncomfortable situation that the real Jesus puts us in if he was who he said he was, which the earliest sources tell us that he was. And if he was, then he's either Lord of the universe or he's a liar or he's a crazy man or something worse. And those are the options we're going to consider next week. I hope you join us for that. But right now, let's close with prayer. Dear God, we kind of cut through the legend piece of this thing today, and I pray that you would help us to look square in the face of Jesus, to not let our minds be clouded by just-so stories or stories that are designed intentionally to avoid looking at who he said he was but rather to have the boldness and the courage to just look at what he said. And in so doing, God, may we have the courage of faith to respond appropriately. And here is a man that we find who not only claims to be the Lord of life, he's the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that makes no sense unless he's the Lord of life. And then he can give us rest because he is who he said he was. God, give us the faith then to orient our lives. Give us the courage to orient our lives around this man. If coming to believe that he was who he said he was, he was the Lord of life, he becomes the Lord of our lives. And make it so, I pray. For Jesus' sake and glory in our lives and in our church. Amen. All right, church, so glad you're here taking in this uh, stuff. We're going to keep this going, by the way. We want to look even further into the proximity issue in extended we're going to do that in two minutes we always do that after the service a chance for you to talk back maybe get some questions answered we're going to do that here unplugged in two minutes next week we're going to wrap up the series talking about whether jesus was inclusive or exclusive you want to invite a friend we'll see you here next week